And that church is made up of eternal souls. And so the bulk of what we do will be to help and to be interacting with other humans. But nothing that we do should be because of other humans. It should be because it's what God's called us to do. Is it easier when people high-five us and they think that we're wonderful? Of course it is. But that is not something that we should be lending ourselves to as a source of, of motivation. Our motivation is because God has saved us and he's called us with a holy calling. And we get to be involved with something great. And we talked about how to work through those issues and, and really giving our thought lives to, to the Lord and confessing and inviting, kind of breaking different thought loops we can get into of depression and anxiety and inviting God into that. So this morning's passage is pretty long, and there's a lot of ways that we could handle it. Because this morning's passage is when Paul, they actually leave Paphos, they jump on a boat, and they go up to Perga. So now that if we don't have the map up there, but if you look, you have the island of Cyprus. They leave to the west, and they kind of go northwest up to Perga. So now they're in like far western Turkey, basically, almost to Greece. So there they are, and uh, what's going to happen is they're going to they're go to a synagogue, and Paul is going to preach the gospel, and we'll cover that. But the, the, the difficult part about this passage is, one, it's very long, <laughs> um, but the, it's all one thought. So I want to cover it all in one thought this morning. There's a lot of ways that we could look at it. We could look at uh, what Paul shared with the Gentiles and the Jews, just the content of it, because in that content, there's great doctrine in there. In that content, there's uh, great history in there. We could could approach it from a historical point of view. We could approach it from a cultural point of view. We could talk about uh, the, the great doctrine of freedom from the law that's in there. We could talk about all sorts of things, and it would take a really long time, and those would be profitable discussions. We could talk about all the prophecy, the quotes from the Old Testament that are in there that Christ fulfilled. So I'm honestly going to neglect most of that. Uh, because those are, each one of those things would probably be a, works, you know, a, a, a week of Sundays worth of sermons. Um, but what we, I want to focus on is to kind of continue, and instead of ideas about longevity in the ministry, to continue with ideas about ministering in the ministry and how to minister to people, how to talk to people, how to be helpful to people. Because I think for ministering to people, there's some little tidbits in here and some clues in here that is, we, we pick them out and we, we discuss them that can maybe help us in our journey as we want to help other people, right? Um, having said that, why, why is it ideas? I want to, from the beginning, say this. Many times you might have read books or hear teachings, and it's, this is the way you do it, and if you don't, you're wrong. Have you ever heard something like that? This is how you outreach, and if you don't outreach this way, you're wrong. Uh, many of us may be familiar with the, the parachute, right? That, that when we're outreaching to people, it's like the gospel is like a parachute on a plane that's going down, and if you let them feel comfortable, then you're doing it wrong, and they'll take their parachute off, and you know, all these different philosophies. So I'm not here to say anybody else is wrong. I'm here to say that when we look at the New Testament, we get some pretty cool ideas, and we get some pretty cool examples about how two people that really seem to know and to love Jesus successfully ministered in the work. Does that make sense? So that's where we're at this morning. We're going to read, and we're going to go through it. Uh, So if you're thinking to yourself, wow, there's a lot here, and he didn't cover that, you are 100% right. So let's get stuck in. Acts chapter uh, 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now let me just make a note. That is a different Antioch. 
Okay, this isn't the, the first Antioch that they were sent from is about, oh, I don't know, probably 250 miles east of this Antioch. Does that make sense? Maybe 200 miles. This is just a different Antioch, so you can know that. This one, I should have made another map, or I didn't make that map. I should have had another one. But essentially, you have Antioch where they left from, and they kind of went down and around like this, and they went up, and now they're kind of circling back through Turkey. Does that make sense? So that's what's happening. So they get to Antioch, um, and he says there, uh, on, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Now we'll stop there. So the first point I want to make, the first idea for ministering to people is this, let the Holy Spirit lead. There's, a little, there's some details in here that are actually just fantastic. So they're doing all this traveling. They go to the synagogue, and it says there in verse 14, check this out, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. Why is that re- relevant? Because they didn't go into the synagogue and say, Brothers, listen to us. So this is about 12 years after Christ has been crucified. Maybe 13. Okay? So they know some things about Jesus. They know that there's another sect of Judaism that they, the, 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 excuse me, that the Romans would recognize as a sect of Judaism that's called the Way. Or maybe they've heard Christians, right? Christians was a slang that was invented to mock believers of the Way, okay? That, and that first started in Antioch. So all they know is there's a Way. They know probably that Paul was very involved as a Pharisee in persecuting the church, right? This was his history. This was his legacy. Most likely, Paul was on the Sanhedrin. He was part of the crew that, that, that were there. It says that he approved of Stephen stoning, and it's the idea of voting, that he not just approved it like, hey, this is a good deal, but the actual like, yes, I approve this. I put my stamp on this. We should do this. So it's not, Paul is, is widely known. Do they know him by face? No, I don't want to read too much into that. But it's interesting that 12 years later after the crucifixion of Jesus, that these two guys show up, and they come in and they just sit down. This is a really important concept for ministering to people. It's been wisely said by many that no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And we have to be careful as Christians, because we might know a lot, and we might love a lot, and we want my, we might want so much for people to hear what we have to say, not out of pompousness, maybe out of pompousness, not out of you know, all sorts of weirdness, but just, I want you to be saved. I want you to be healed. I, I want you to know. I, I want you to be uh, uh, a follower of Jesus and all these things. We can want something so bad that we feel like we have to act. On top of that, there can be pressure from people outside that just say, like, hey, if you're not doing this, this, and this, if you're not speaking the gospel this often, if you don't have this, if you don't have that, then you're inadequate, and your ministry is pathetic, and you're doing it wrong. And that's for between you and the Lord. Who you should talk to and when you should talk to them, that's between you and the Lord. Oh, I'm familiar, and you probably are too. The Scripture says, be ready with the gospel, in season and out of season. And that's true. But the really cool thing about this particular example is they just come into the synagogue and they sit down and they listen. And there's this reading 
And then all of a sudden, somehow, they get a message. Now, this is really interesting, right? If you recall, when Jesus went to the synagogue, he just grabbed a scroll, he read it, he closed it, he read Isaiah, a quote out of Isaiah, he said, this is about me, and then he set it down. But, the, but Paul and Barnabas, they take this back seat, they sit down, and then somehow the people, the leaders of the synagogue, they get a message to them. Again, we don't know why. It seems that they would have just said, which seems to be normal synagogue etiquette, to just like say, would you like to share? Or really, realistically, that any guest, any male that was of adult age could stand up and share. So why is it they send a message specifically to Paul? We don't, we don't know. And Barnabas, we, we don't ultimately know. Maybe they were those who were followers of the way. Remember, the Christians, the, the church buildings... The first church buildings that we have recorded in history don't come along for about 200 more years. So they're still meeting in synagogues. They're meeting in homes. They don't have the Bible. They only have itinerant ministers. Who knows why that they did this? Maybe somebody's secretly a follower of the way, in the, the thing, whatever it might be. But they give them an invitation and they say, if you have something encouraging to say, then say it. And this is the second half of this. Not only should we be able to come into a situation and just sit and wait on the Lord and see what He has for us to minister, but then when the invitation comes to let the door be opened. So this is a wide open door. They're in a synagogue, and Jews have said, will you please speak to us encouraging things? And so they get to stand up and they get to share. And one of the things when we're ministering to people is the idea that we have to have the invitation. Am I saying don't go two by two witnessing or don't do that? No, I'm not. I will say this, though. When I, in my former church, we outreached every Thursday night at a farmer's market that had usually between five to 10,000 people at it. And we went two by two witnessing. There was probably about, I don't know, 40 of us that every Thursday night we went two by two witnessing. We made questions. We did all this. And, and, and for all the, I don't know, 11 years, 52 Thursdays, let's say I missed 20 of those, I talked to a lot of people, and so did all the other the people in our church. And we all had practiced uh, presentations and all these type of things. And you would get people now and again that would, that would accept the Lord or hear what you had to say or whatever it might be, and sometimes you wouldn't. And at the same time, we had an open-air preaching team. And this was really fascinating to me because I started on this open-air preaching team. And when we started, you would stand on a corner. And we're talking thousands of people walking by. And you would begin to preach the gospel. And when we first started, you'd get a crowd of 100 people. Easy. They would stop and they would listen to you. And they would ask you questions or throw things at you. Or I mean, it was kind of a, a variance of responses. And then by the end, I would say about seven years after I joined up with that, you would stand on that same corner or any corner, and you would get two, maybe. Maybe. So they didn't care what you had to say anymore. You were just another voice, another somebody yelling or whatever it might be. So I'm not trying to diminish those things. I'm just speaking about my own personal experience. I would say in the literal thousands of people I preach the gospel to on those Thursday nights, I pray with two. Now maybe I'm just bad at it, and I'm freely willing to admit that. But that, that's my own personal experience. So I think when we observe here the fact that there was an open door, that God opened a miraculous door in the synagogue to let Paul preach, I think that's important as we consider ideas for effectual ministry or, or ministering in, uh, in the work, however we'd like to phrase that. And so they, they give him this open door, and they get this opportunity to go in and to talk about 
all about Jesus and give those encouraging words. I also think it's noteworthy that they ask them for encouraging words, and we'll talk about that too. Not that we want to shy away from the truth of the gospel or something like that. So verse 16, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And the God of this people Israel, excuse me, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he let them out of it. And for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will." Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. As he promised before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing uh, his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but uh, no, but behold, one, excuse me, I am not he, no, But behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And we'll stop there for a second. So the second part of this, I just title this, invest in your craft. And this is what I mean. Paul lays out a history for these guys. Why? Because they're Jews, right? He's trying to relate to them. If you think about the message to the gospel, the message of the gospel to the Jews, I don't know, in my mind, it becomes a little bit extra radical. Because the, the average Jew was very devout, at least outwardly and religiously. And the gospel comes and says, look, this thing that God did for these millennia is over. And now there's something new. So you as a Jew, you need some sort of input. You need to go, okay, wait a minute. How can you come along and say that this, that this person, that this, this uh, carpenter turned rabbi being crucified by the Jewish leaders, the people that we're supposed to follow and obey, is somehow the Christ. How do you get there from here? How do we deal with that? So he begins to intelligently lay out the history, and then he's going to go into a bunch of prophecy. So why, why say this? Let the, the Invest in your craft. Because it's important that when we speak to people about the gospel, that we use wisdom, that we use understanding. Look, I'm not saying that we all have to be geniuses or memorize everything from the Answers in Genesis website or know all the history or all the anything like that. That's, that's not my point. My point is that we ought to know and consider who we're talking to for as much as we can. Not to judge people or measure people or something like that, but there's many tells that when we're involved in pe- with people that we can use to hopefully help the communication. 
If someone uh, dresses a certain way or looks a certain way, we can gain some understanding sometimes, I'm not saying judge everybody by their cover, but who they are and what they believe. A lot of times in our family, we might know someone's political beliefs or their religious history or the history of their, their upbringing was like or all these different things. You meet One of the things, I don't know if you've noticed this, you can meet, at least right now, so many people. I would almost say the majority of people have some sort of church history. My, I'm 44. My age are up. I'm right around my age. You can almost talk to anybody and they have some sort of Christian history. I can't tell you when I was in the fire department how many guys I met that said, oh yeah, I went to that church. I was baptized in that building. I went to, uh, what's the one with the kids that learn scriptures? Awanas. I went to Awanas in that building. You know, all these, and they have this, this history. These things can help us to be able to dialogue with people, to use wisdom. Again, I want to be careful here because I'm not trying to say it's all about skill, it's all this or whatever, but what I am saying is that you'll note that there's probably people you enjoy listening to when they talk about the Bible and probably people that you do not. There's kind of a weird... In some, at some places and sometimes, there's kind of this weird half-truth, full-truth, half-truth, and it's this. It's a truth. The Word of God is powerful, which, as a believer, we would probably all say, Amen. Right? It's powerful, and in, in it's, it's, it's perfect, it's wonderful, right? It's, it's accurate in its original forms. You know, we would, that's what we would, we would say that. And there's this kind of this weird rub, right? Because there's certain ministries, especially, that there's this idea that, hey, you don't really, you can just get up and just talk. Or you can just read a verse. Maybe you've experienced that where you're like, hey, I'm really down today. And somebody goes, turns, and they, and they in, in the best intentions in the world, because they love you, they turn to a verse and they go, well, the Bible says right here, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You're welcome. <laughs> I have fixed your problem. I have notified you that you should not be sad. The word of God is powerful. Now rejoice. And you're kind of left like, well, I already had that on my fridge. And I still left not rejoicing. And we're weird, too. We're, we're broken. Sometimes we don't, we don't know why we're, we're not rejoicing. Sometimes we, you ever felt depressed? and be like, I don't even know why. I'm just down today. We can be depressed because we haven't eaten food. We're hypoglycemic. We can be depressed because life circumstances have happened to us. We can be depressed because we don't even know why. We can be depressed for some because we're eating the wrong food. There's like a billion reasons that don't fit unbelief into why you're depressed. And so this, this idea is very true that the Word of God is powerful, but we're told as believers to rightly divide the Word of truth. We're told as believers to speak to people with wisdom. So there's a part of helping people that takes skill. And, and, and perhaps you've even known people where if you voice any kind of anxiety or depression or any kind of worry, it's just kind of this comeback with the verse comeback. You should just be different because the Bible says that you should be different. And then you're just left basically feeling guilty, holding the bag, and condemned. 
So there is an investment for you and I to be made. In this case, he goes through history and he's going to go through prophecy of how we can help people and help minister the Word of God. You know, in Ephesians chapter 6, I don't know, uh, I wasn't here last Thursday, so I'm not sure if, if Luke covered it, but in, in Ephesians chapter 6, when, he, when um, Paul's talking about the armor of God to kind of battle against uh, the principalities and powers of this world, against Satan, against our old nature... He talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Are you guys familiar with that? And he says, and we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's a little twist in there that I think is very important, because if we turn to John 1, and it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the word word in the Greek is logos, or logos, which means the expression of a thought. And so in the, in, when you read first, or when you read John, and Christ is the Word, He's the Logos, the idea is there is everything that God ever wanted to say and appear and for us to understand was all summed up in who Jesus is, what He did, and what He said. But when we come back to Ephesians chapter 6, the sword of the Christian, or the sword of the Spirit, in other words, the sword that the Spirit is using, that the Christian gets the wield, is the Word of God. That word is not logos. It's not the complete expression of who Jesus is and all that he did. It's rhema, which is used a few times in the New Testament. And the idea there is like a prophetic word, the appropriate word at the appropriate time. So just like someone can, you, maybe you've had experiences where someone can come along and they just whip their generic sword out and they're just like, rejoice in the Lord, brother. Amen, I'm going to get coffee. And there you are left feeling empty and abandoned and all the, the emotion that goes along with that. And then there's been other times where somebody's come alongside you, prayed with you, shared something, and it was like, dude, that's exactly what I needed. That was a word from God for me. And they shared with compassion and kindness, and they were helpful. And that is, it, it, it is the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the Spirit, and it's the power of the Word but it's the skill and wisdom of a believer that is listening to the Lord. And that's really important if we're going to minister to each other. Because we can't just go around waving a generic sword and think that we're helping people. You know, the, the, the incredible thing about the Word is we can, we can destroy as much as we can heal with it. Maybe you experienced that, and maybe you've done that. I've done both. Being pompous and a moron and ignorant at different times. And so we need to have mercy on those people that they think, because they love us, they're doing a solid to just kind of toss a verse out there. And we also need to be those that are willing to practice our craft and invest in reading the Scripture, becoming disciples, understanding what we're reading, getting to know the people we want to minister to, forgiving them, loving them, encouraging them, spending time with them, using wisdom. In Titus... You can flip there if you'd like. I'm just going to turn there real quick. In Titus, Paul writing to Titus <clears throat> in chapter 3. We read in second service, we read Colossians 4, 5 through 6 last week, but I'm going to read a different one this morning. In Titus, verse... Oh, what? Sorry, I jumped out of Titus into Timothy. In Titus, chapter 3, he says there... I'm going to read a little bit for context... 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, 
to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So you get a whole different vibe as Paul is writing to Titus of how we can minister to people wisely and care about them. It's completely different than what we see in general in the world today, isn't it? It's gentleness. In the world today, we don't see a lot of gentleness. We see rage, right? We see uh, 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 wanting to squash others and their beliefs. We see, I was talking to someone uh, this morning, and they, and, and they were discussing a statement that they got into a, sc- a discussion with where somebody said, you cannot be a Christian and be a Democrat. Um, and so you, in, in today's generation, you see these kind of just destroy. And, and that's why our nation is the way it is today. Completely split. With people hating, being hated, and hating one another. So instead, we're called to gentleness. Gentleness, check this out, with an understanding that we were that way, that we were given to lust and to pleasure, to anger, and that we got saved out of it. Not because we did good things and so therefore God saved us, but because of his grace and his mercy. So we have this calling. If we're going to be those that are available in our ministry, available and effectual in our ministry, we need to be led of the Spirit. We need to invest in our craft and, and, and really invest in your ministry. Invest in the people you're ministering to. Invest in becoming more knowledgeable in, in what God's called you to do, whatever that might be. Invest in caring about people. Repent when you don't care about people. When you have ill thoughts, when you're not gentle, when you're judgmental, when you're ready to destroy. I'm not saying forsake truth. I'm saying that walk like Jesus walked. We'll keep reading. Verse 28, And though they found no guilt in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers, This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And this, excuse me, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and the sure blessings of David. Now pause there real quick. You can see that He's giving these prophecies, and we could spend time in these prophecies, and as, I guess as a pro tip, I would just tell you, whenever you see a prophecy or a, an Old Testament quote, your Bible might have it in all caps, it might have it uh, in brackets, there's different ways that different Bibles represent it, but when you see a quote from the Old Testament, to understand it in the New Testament, you should go and read it in the Old Testament, and read all around it to gain its context. But here he's talking to Jews, so he's reaching back to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant, and he's showing and trying to uh, help them to understand that this is what the psalmists were talking about. So in light of the resurrection, he says, You're my son, today I've begotten you, which is interesting. 
because we're probably more often thinking that that's the day that Jesus was born, but this is actually spoken of his resurrection, a prophecy about that. That's fascinating, um, that he's talking about that he is the seed of David, and then verse 35, therefore he says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through the, this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everyone, everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. So the second, or excuse me, the third thing is this. Bring people good news. Bring people good news. There's a lot of gospels that get shared out there that's really bad news. The homosexual gospel, for some reason, is a special one. And it's always this idea that we want, we want to qualify the gospel to homosexuals. Christ died for your sins, but just know this, you can't be gay after you get saved. We don't do that to anybody else. We don't go to gossips, malicious gossips, and say, hey, here's the thing. I see you running your mouth all over town. I see you destroying lives. Here's the gospel, but if you get saved, you can't gossip anymore. If you do, you're out of the church. You need to know that. So we need to just bring good news to people. We're not faltering from the truth. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every last one of us, we can say like Paul, there's nothing good that dwells in me. That is in my flesh, except Christ. The gospel is equal opportunity, and it's freedom, and it's grace. And that's the freedom he shares with these guys. There's no qualifiers. There's no little fine print with specific sins that we don't like, that we say, if you do this, then no. It's just this is the gospel. It's the good news. And he shares it. He says, and he goes through and he says, Christ died. He was the seed of uh, of Abraham. He was the seed of David. When David prophesied that you wouldn't let your Holy One see corruption, he wasn't talking about David because David died and sought corruption. He was talking about Christ who is his lineage. He goes through this whole thing and gives us amazing good news of the gospel. Are we saying don't talk about sin? No. We're not saying that. We're just, I'm saying is that when God presents an open door, when we sit down and someone sends us a message and says, hey, why don't you share something, you have something encouraging? When we're exercising wisdom and we're dialoguing with people, most of those people don't need a thumb on them. Most of those people don't need you know, to, to hear. Is the sin the bad news of the gospel? Of course it is. Should we help people in to find freedom and that from their sin? Of course we should. But we're to do it kindly and gently and helpful. You might have noticed from your own life, when someone comes and just sticks it to you, how do you respond to that? If someone walks up to you and just says, you're a dirty, rotten piece of junk, but God had mercy upon you, so, you know, I guess you can get saved as long as you don't continue to be a dirty, rotten piece of junk afterwards. Are you interested? How do you respond to that? Not very well, typically. Most people know that they're messed up but they're just like us and that they don't want to admit it. Our job is not to convince people that they're messed up and they're hopelessly lost. They already know that. It's why they sent you an invitation. It's why they came to church. It's why they've allowed you to speak to them about something. The Holy Spirit lead you in when you need to bring someone's someone sin up. That's between you and the Lord. And there's definitely a time where that might need to be done. 
All I'm saying is that Paul doesn't sit down and make a layout of sins as he's giving the gospel. But he makes the point, you can be free from your sin. And as we're talking about this, bring good news that the gospel brings freedom from sin. This is the best news in the world. It's what makes the gospel so wonderful. It's what makes, it's what makes it worth talking about. It's what makes it and sets it apart from any other news that's in the world. Is the fact that what happened at Calvary is that Christ paid the penalty for our sin. The whole penalty. In fact, Paul would go on to write an entire letter to the Romans about this, but he says very eloquently and wonderfully and definitively in Romans chapter 3, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19, he says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's speaking of Jews versus Gentiles there. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. A propitiation is a fancy Christian word for the exact right payment by His blood to, receive, to be received by faith. See, he gives this message to these people, and it's just fantastic because to Jews he's saying, verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. One of the fascinating things about the law of Moses, the sacrificial law, there was no sacrifice for iniquity. No sacrifice for sin, like a deliberate rebellious sin. So if you, which is interesting because there were sacrifices for theft, you know, these different things. But there was some special, there's an idea in the Old Testament of iniquity when you just flat out just say, no, I know what I shouldn't do. I don't care what I shouldn't do. I'm rejecting God and his influence into my life, and I'm doing this. There was no sacrifice for that, which is very interesting. And so there's certain things the law could not free us from. The law says that it blotted out sin, that the sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, it blotted it out, it smeared over sin, it covered it for a time. In other words, when the father looked at the sin, he saw that there was a sacrifice made by faith, and that blotted out sin. There was still faith involved. It wasn't just the religious activity of making a sacrifice. It was the idea of moving forward in what God had called a person to do and to give that sacrifice. That's the blood that covered sin. But it wouldn't be until Christ comes and he says he forgave sin because there was no forgiveness in the blood of bulls and goats. There was only a covering. So all the Old Testament believers, Jewish believers, they looked forward to when Christ would come. Whereas all of us, the church age, we all look back to when Christ would come for the forgiveness of sins. So he's giving this message here, and he says that there's, certain, there's things that the law could not free you from. The law could never make a person righteous. That's why we don't preach the law. Because you and I cannot do enough of the law to make God say, hey, I'm really proud of you. Now you can be forgiven. Now you can be right with me. We just read it. 
Through the works of the law, no human being can be justified, made right with God. It cannot happen. So when, our, when we give the good news to people, we don't have fine print about how you become righteous. We don't have fine print of how God will extra forgive you. Now, we want to be careful because sin always costs, doesn't it? There's never a time if you rage or you rebel or you, you know, get your fornicate on or fill in the blank, whatever you want to mix in there, there's always fallout from that, isn't it? Whether it's guilt or anxiety, destruction of relationships, emptiness from being separated, uh, not, not spiritually, but separated um, uh, relationally from God, rejecting His input into our lives, right? There's all those things that come with it. But you and I have been made righteous right with God, through the free gift of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why we get to have joy and peace and to sing. Can you imagine if you had to come in and God determined if you get to worship Him or not based on your behavior or your thought life? Would there be any of us that would walk in and say, I deserve to give God praises today. I'm incredibly pure. I, was, I wasn't rude to anybody this week. I wasn't impatient with my, impatient with my kids this week. I was kind to every minimum wage worker I met, right? All the stuff that we feel we can treat people poorly, we feel we can do this, we feel we can do that, because we have some sort of bizarre superiority thing. If it, none of us, none of us, we get to come in here and worship God because He paid for our sin in His Son, Jesus Christ. And we have nothing up on anybody. We're just sinners saved by grace. And it's a humbling thought, but it's a freeing thought. Because if you're a sinner saved by grace, then you're, you're, you don't have to earn anything. So let's make sure that when, when we're ministering to people, let's let the Holy Spirit lead us, right? Let's be those that are investing in our craft, investing in our ministries, finding out about people, finding out how to communicate uh, effectively, making sure that with the Spirit's leading our words, making sure we're being gentle, we're being kind, we're being wise. Let's make sure that we're bringing people good news, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ unconditionally through the blood of Christ. There's a couple other points we're out of time. From verse 43, this idea, let's, our goal is to help people search. Some people listened and some people didn't. Right? Some people left and some people listened. It's interesting because when Jesus was asked why in, in Matthew 13, his disciples, he shares all those, those parables of the kingdom. And his disciples, they come back, they say, Jesus, why do you share in parables? And he says, I share in parables so the people that listen to me won't understand what I'm saying. And you feel like that seems counterintuitive to preaching the gospel. And I'm not saying let's take a pro tip from that. But if you think about Jesus either sitting or walking while he gives the parables, he didn't chase every single person down, did he? You don't hear him giving a parable and going to each individual person and be like, did you understand that? Did you get that? Did you understand that? Did you get that? Oh, why are you walking away? No, 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 come back here, come back here. Did you understand that? Can I help you with that? He said what God told him to say, and the people that left, that left, and the people that stayed, stayed. And he told his disciples, they say, why do you speak in parables? I say, he says, I speak in parables so that seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear. Then he goes on to say, to him who has, more shall be given. And to him who has not, even what he has shall be taken away. And that was in reference to the parables. In other words, to those that exercise any little bit of faith that stopped and listened to him. Those who exercise any little bit of faith, like the disciples that said, we don't know what you're talking about. 
Isn't that interesting? The disciples were like, we don't understand these parables. We're like, oh, the sower and the seed, it's an agricultural community. They know exactly what he was talking about. Clearly, he was speaking so that everybody understand him. No, they had no idea what he was talking about. They even said, we don't know what you're talking about. Can you explain this to us? And he says, to him who has, more shall be given. In other words, you exercised a little faith. Now I'm going to tell you. He says, now for you is to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And he, and he reveals it to them, and he talks to them, and he develops them. And he says, but to the ones who have not, even what they had, which was the parable that they walked by listening to, shall be taken from them. And that's really that's, that's the ultimate fulfillment of the, the sower and the seed, right? The seed falls on the hard pack, and those are the people, they have hard hearts, and they just walk away, and then Satan's able to grab the seed. So how does that affect our ministry? There's going to be people that care and listen, and there's going to be people that do not care. There's a great teaching, if you want to look it up, it's uh, on YouTube. It's called Five People That You Can't Help. It's a fantastic teaching, actually. And, and the, the guy basically just goes through and he talks about five different kind of people that you can't help, whether it's the, you're not the one that they're going to receive help from, whether it's not the time that they're going to receive help, but this, they're, just, they're not ready for it, or they just don't want help and there's two others I can never remember. But the point being is this, that there are people that you cannot help, and they're going to take what they have and they're going to leave and unfortunately, without condemnation, what they have will be taken from them. But it's their decision. We're not here to chase people down and force them to follow Jesus. We're here to cast the seed regardless of what the ground looks like. You know, they're, they're, they're seed chuckers. They're not soil inspectors. And so it's for us to be those that are, that are going out. And if, if for, helping us to help, for us to help people in our ministry... We have to let people go. It's not saying we don't pray for them. It's not saying we don't love them. It's not saying that, but you know what? Chasing people down that don't want to be helped is not going to help them. It's going to frustrate you. That's all it's going to do. It's not going to show you that you love them. Have you ever had someone that you were trying to express love to and they received it as an offense? And you can say, well, it's your fault. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Or instead of blame, we can change the way we love people to show them that we, we do, to, to help them receive it in a way that they can. And we won't go into it, but the last one is, and I kind of covered it, is know when to say when. Because at the, in verse 52, he says this, uh, verse, I'm sorry, verse 51, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. So some of the Jews rejected them. In 52, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit uh, and with joy. And so in this last part, sometimes you've got to know when to say when, and you dust off your feet. And you go. But the cool thing is, and this is another point, our, our teaching is never to get people to follow us. Because even when they left, the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Our ministry is to always point people to Christ, always point people to be led by the Spirit. We never want people to be like, what do you, oh, vicar, what do you think, James? It's fine to get uh, opinions and ideas and counsel, but our goal is never to bring people to ourselves. Our goal is to point people to Christ. So there's hopefully some things in there that can help you to work through and to figure out how you can be involved and, and help other people in your ministry. Again, this isn't the definitive way that everybody has to do it this way or else they're terrible human beings and going to hell. We're not saying that. We're saying these are just ideas that we've pulled out that seem to work by Paul and Barnabas as they were led by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and the example that we have of the saints that went before us. Lord, thank you that you want to reach the community, uh, and you've decided to use human beings to do that. 
Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear your word, to hear your call in our lives, so that we would walk with you and serve you. Lord, we, uh, we confess, sometimes we neglect what you have to say. Sometimes we don't esteem it as being worth much. But we want to repent, and we want to listen to you. Would you please speak to our hearts and lead us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And God bless you guys.